This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome to Through the Ringer. I'm your host, Tate Frazier. It is Friday, so you know what that means. Nora's on the show. Nora, great to see you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, Tate. It's great to see you as well. Well, the good news for us, Nora, uh, is we had a very Merry Christmas because on Monday Night Football, we got to watch our Baltimore Ravens tell the world that they are the number one team. And if you look at the Ringer Power Rankings, they are officially the number one team in the Power Rankings. Let's start there. What are your thoughts on the Ravens? How dominant was that performance? And what a statement from Lamar Jackson. I mean, what a statement from Lamar Jackson, but also what a statement from Mike McDonald's defense. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just such an interesting outcome to see what they were able to do to those 49ers quarterbacks. And honestly, like that to me was a bigger question about if anyone could make what had seemed like a juggernaut 49ers offense look that way. And it seemed like if anyone can do it, it was going to be the Ravens and it was going to be Mike McDonald, but to actually see it in action almost to me was more of a game changer in terms of like really, really, really being able to believe in this team than anything they did offensively, even though again, super potent offense. I are Ravens. I just feel great about them. Tate. <laughs> Our Ravens and uh, Lamar Jackson has had a great time, uh, you know, on Twitter this season. One of the few guys that can go on Twitter and actually, you know, bump his stock up. He was having fun after the game, kind of dancing on the graves of the people that doubted the Ravens. Brian Curtis, the very or ringers, very own Brian Curtis was pointing out the fact that the Ravens said that nobody believes in them. Uh, nobody wants to talk about this Ravens team. But you and I, we are willing to go out, stick our necks out and talk about this team. Um, Lamar Jackson is the favorite to win MVP right now. Uh, do you feel like he is the MVP of the NFL this season? Yes, absolutely. Uh, he needed, you know, some of it is sort of by other candidates falling off. I think Dak Prescott was making a really good argument for himself for a few weeks there. And, and now the Cowboys haven't looked quite as dominant. Uh, but Lamar, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. To me, MVP is who changes the geometry of the field the most. And there's really no one who, who has a better argument in those terms than Lamar Jackson. Uh, I think we saw it certainly against the 49ers, just how he changes what a defense has to do and how much he opens up, especially in this current iteration of the Ravens offense, where they're not running him as much. And it's more that he scrambles to pass instead of just scrambling outright. And I was mm -hmm. wondering if, if that was going to change in this game, just because the 49ers have been been vulnerable against the run and in particular against the mobile quarterbacks. But what was interesting to me was that the Ravens didn't really have to change what they do offensively in order to beat these 49ers and to look good on offense against that defense. And to me, it's just because Lamar is such a threat that he doesn't have to carry it out. It's just the fact that he is on the field changes so much about the nature of, of defense for the opponent. Uh, so he is he is my MVP. There's still a couple of weeks left to decide, but I'm pretty sure that that's how that that's going to hold up. 
Yeah, he's the favorite right now at minus 200. Going into that game on Christmas Day, Brock Purdy was the favorite to win MVP. He ends up throwing four interceptions in this game, uh, gets taken out of the game. Sam Darnold comes into the game. It was injury, and they said it was too late to, you know, there's a lot of, like, conversation. He wasn't actually benched, yada, yada, yada. Great, great close-up <laughs> shot on Kyle Shanahan. He's got the play sheet. He's shielding his lips from the lip readers, but you're just looking at Brock Purdy's face and you kind of know what's going on there. Um, Little injury, little performance, little games out of hand. It's all in a stew there. But uh, yeah, it's, it's it felt like a PR statement at some level. It, it was like, we're not benching Brock. It's just the game's out of hand. Uh, but are we concerned? You know, I mean, he is obviously the most important player. He might not be the most valuable player. Obviously, Christian McCaffrey, a lot of people would say that for this team, but he is the most important. When he plays like this, he throws four picks. It takes, you know, San Francisco out of who they are as a team. And it kind of takes the aura of invincibility away from this team. Are we concerned about the 49ers after watching this game on Christmas Day? You know, I I think it was sort of, it felt like this was a possible outcome or at Mm -hmm. least for, you know, for the Brock Purdy doubters, which I think is a silly framework, but for the people out there who sort of looked at the 49ers performance and went, some of these throws are iffy. And they're working out because of the incredible playmaking ability of everyone who's around him. But there are picks to be had here and there are mistakes that he's coming close to making, but isn't quite making. And so to see that come to fruition, I don't think it like changes the calculus that dramatically about San Francisco because I felt that he had this game in him, but nobody had done it. And I don't think there's another defense that has the creativity of what Mike McDonald does after the snap in particular, just changing the picture so consistently. And then also with, you know, before he went out with the injury, but with Kyle Hamilton, with Patrick Queen, with Roquan Smith, with the middle of the field defensive talent. So I don't worry about the 49ers too much. But I do think that one thing we learned is that they do not match up very well with these Ravens. And if this was a Super Bowl preview, which I still very much believe that it might have been, that's a scary thought. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, if we go down the power rankings, obviously San Francisco is there at number two. So we saw the number one team, the number two team play on Christmas Day. Tate, I can't believe you just (laughs) mentioned the power rankings. I'm shocked. I I just look, you know, we're just going through it. At first, I had to talk about Christmas Day, right? We're in the holiday season. Uh, But we got number three of the power rankings. We got the Dolphins. And then number four, I think, is the next interesting conversation. The Buffalo Bills, a team that we had written off, a team that um, a lot of people at the start of the year thought they could win the Super Bowl. Then in the middle of the year, they turned against them. Now we're like... Buffalo is a top five team in the NFL. How do we feel about the Bills right now? Can we trust the Buffalo Bills? Or are you still a little bit you know, worried about believing in them to that extent? So can we trust anybody is the yes, question. Yeah, like, think about point. the season as a whole. <laughs> right. The Chiefs are losing to the Raiders. The Cowboys are having dominant wins and horrible losses. The Dolphins are up and down. The Bills right now we're talking about as a top five team as a Super Bowl contender. A couple of weeks ago, it seemed like they weren't going to make the playoffs. Yeah. I mean, nobody is trustworthy. The 49ers seemed like the only trustworthy team in the league. And the Ravens maybe take that that crown now at this point. But at the same time, if a quarter of the way into that game, Baltimore had had a couple bad drops. You're thinking, oh, man, I, I, it's a better receiving core, but it's still not everything that you might want out of a Super Bowl roster. This is just what this year is like. Everybody is up and down. Everybody has a fatal flaw. And... I think we just got to accept that it's topsy-turvy. And here's the thing. Does that sound like any other team's ethos more than that of the Buffalo Bills? Like this, Mm -hmm. it it almost makes me wonder if this ends up being their year because it's just (laughs) so much chaos and they, they thrive in chaos. Absolutely. The Buffalo Bills almost need chaos to to survive and thrive. Uh, Let's talk about some of the biggest games of the week. We do have the number one team in the power rankings, the Ravens taking on the number three team, the Dolphins Ravens minus three and a half in this game. Um, Do we think this could be a time for the Dolphins maybe to make a statement to go up to Baltimore and, and say, Hey, we're here. We're in the conversation and we're actually a contender. So, I worry about the Dolphins offense Mm -hmm. again, because I think even more so 
than San Francisco. You're talking about, you know, two offenses that have some schematic similarities that come out of the same tree. But whereas with San Francisco, the thing that I thought was really encouraging for the Ravens is that even if you find ways to change the picture from before to after the snap all the time, even if you find ways to disrupt the timing, do all the things that you have to do to be good against that type of offense, San Francisco just has guys that can beat you and they have a lot of them. You still have to tackle Christian McCaffrey. You still have to tackle Depot Samuel. You still have to get them on the ground. Miami has some version of that in terms of just the overall team speed, but one, they're dealing with a lot of injuries. And two, I think they are more susceptible to just, if you get into their rhythm, things get really tough. Mm -hmm. So on that side of the ball, I feel pretty good about the Ravens. The interesting matchup is that Miami defense, which since Jalen Ramsey came back has just absolutely dominated what they are going to look like against Lamar and against the Ravens offense, because Mm. that could be really, really telling. And if Miami makes a statement, I bet it's on the defensive side of the ball rather than offensively. Yeah, I do think Miami has the most to gain in this game. And if you look right now at the coach of the year conversation, uh, Mike McDaniel plus 900 to be the coach of the year. And this is the first playoff berth since 2016 for the Dolphins. Do we buy into the hype that Mike McDaniel should be in that conversation and potentially should be the coach of the year after this performance? I think he's got to be up there, but there are a number of interesting, like who else is up there? Who who are the other favorites? Dan Campbell uh, with the Lions is yeah. the prohibitive favorite. So it does feel like it's Dan Campbell's to lose at this point. The other one that, and I don't know that they have the narrative weight for it, but Kevin Stefanski, I've got to think mm. is, is making a really good case for himself. Just the way that that Browns team has figured it out with like third string offensive linemen, with Joe Flacco, like it's really remarkable to me. I don't think he's going to win it just because I don't think that they're sort of relevant enough and they're not, they're not competing with the players that they're supposed to be competing with. But there are a number of coaching jobs that I think, uh, I think have really impressed. The interesting thing with McDaniel who definitely could win it is what happens if it becomes more and more clear that that is a defensive team Mm. And he has put his stamp on the offense, right? And and when they scored 70 points against the Broncos <laughs> in October, I think it was, uh, you're thinking, oh my gosh, Mike McDaniel has this team in, in such rare form. I wonder if it ends up feeling a little bit like, wow, Vic Fangio's defense, like they they really did it, which the head coach should still get credit for that. But I wonder if if people get off the scent with him a little bit because of that. Uh, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of really interesting candidates and no one who seems like a total runaway to me. Yeah, there's no lock, but let's talk about the favorite. We got Dan Campbell's Lions. They won the NFC North for the first time since 1993. Uh, that was the year I was born. So um, this is the first time in my lifetime where I've been an actual uh, sentient yeah. being that I've seen them uh, win the NFC North. So shout out to them. I'm a 94, baby. It's, it's, oh, right. it's really... It's a whole yeah, new look world at us. out there. Yeah, you were one and you were like, wow, congratulations to the Detroit Lions. Uh, what what no, a year I was negative in- one. Oh, that, oh, my God, you're a negative one. I was oh barely my God. even a thought. Oh, my God. So, yeah, you you and I both, we have no idea what it's like to watch the Lions win the NFC North. So we're both shook right now. Um, but it did happen. It is reality. That's the world that we live in. Um, Lions at Cowboys this week. Cowboys have been dominant at home. They're minus four and a half in this game. Um, how do we feel about the Cowboys taking on the Lions? Like, can they hold up at home? Can they, you know, kind of let people know that they are still a team that dominates at home? What do we expect to see in this game? So I, I have some concerns because one, I think the the home road splits for the Cowboys, if you look closely at it, a lot of it seems to have to do just more with game script than with anything that they're doing in particular when they're at home versus on the road. Uh, so if, if I don't think that there's a ton of credibility to extra Cowboys juice when they are in Dallas, then I, I'm a little worried. Because while the Lions have their vulnerabilities, that team can run the ball. Mm. And the Cowboys defensively have been really, really vulnerable against the run. And in particular, against the type of run game that the Lions have, where they can just they can just punish you and they can run downhill and they've got those big offensive linemen and it's what they want to do. Uh, so if I, I'm Dallas, I'm a little bit worried about a repeat of of that Bills game you're not dealing with Josh Allen and obviously Jared Goff has, has had some struggles recently, but I do think that 
It's really got to feel nice to get the monkey off your back. If you're Detroit, they feel good. They just survived this test of golf going up, up against a Brian Flores defense, which previous iterations of a Patriots, Brian Flores defense and a Dolphins, Brian's, Brian Flores defense had given Jared Goff like two of the worst moments of his entire career. Mm -hmm. And so he survives that. Like, I I think they're probably feeling a sense of relief and are going into a matchup against Dallas where it would really make people feel a lot better about the lions. If they beat a good team, Dallas is a little wounded and Detroit, especially offensively, is is a really good matchup. Now, defensively, I they're to- I think they're completely soft. Mm. So <laughs> Dak's got a good opportunity to to change kind of the momentum going on with that team. But I, I do think that the run defense matchup with Detroit's offense is is tough. It does feel like a big narrative game there in Dallas. Uh, the next one we got, you know, they were fighting for the final AFC playoff spots. The feel good story in the NFL right now is, is the Las Vegas Raiders with, you know, Antonio Pierce being their head coach. Um, they're taking on the Colts this week. Colts minus three and a half in this game. If they do win this game and the Raiders get, you know, one step closer to getting the playoffs, if they do end up making the playoffs, do we think that, you know, coach Pierce is going to end up being the head coach of the Raiders? Like, I feel like we haven't had that conversation really at all. And he just continues to stack up wins with this team. Yeah, I don't, to be honest, I just never, I sort of, as a rule, never bet on the interim head coach to remain the head coach. I just think that the owners cannot resist the opportunity to, you know, go get everybody in, interview everybody, talk to everybody, and then get to, you know, play God and make their selection and say, I anoint you. Right. And the interim head coach always feels like an admission that you hired the wrong guy the last time. So I, I just never think it feels good for the owner to hire the interim guy full time. And therefore I never want to bet on the interim head coach to, to remain the head coach, but he's done a really, he's done, you know, considering the circumstances, he's done a good job. Uh, they are still playing hard. And if you are Mark Davis, there's a lot to like there. I, I just am skeptical. Yeah, it does feel like uh, Steve Wilkes from last season, right? Where, you know, it is great. It is great momentum. There is some positive, you know, conversations about him being the guy. But eventually, like you said, people love the interview process and running their own search for a head coach. Uh, Final game, uh, week 17, Steelers, Seahawks. Mike Tomlin has never had a losing record. It is on the line here. Seahawks minus three and a half in this game. Do we like the Seahawks to get a win here and kind of uh, take their next step to getting in the playoffs? And, And maybe they can make some noise in the playoffs. I think Mike Tomlin has like done something. He's made a pact with the devil. I I just, I, I can't, I can't get there. I think somehow the the Steelers are going to find a way to win this game because it is just what has happened since the dawn of time. Yes. It just feels inevitable on paper. Seattle looks pretty good, but I I cannot sit here and tell you that I think that that is going to happen. I think some weird stuff is going to happen and it's going to be a one score game in the fourth quarter. And then the Steelers are going to get a defensive, either a defensive touchdown or just like a really critical stop turnover something. And they're going to find a way to win the game. Yeah. And Mike Tomlin is going to have done it again. Yeah. This is the most like the, the, conversation we should have at some point is like, is this the most impressive streak, like active streak in sports? Because I I really kind of think it is. Mm. Shout out to Mike Tomlin, shout out to the Steelers and shout out to whatever deal they got going on with the devil. Mike Tomlin should win (laughs) coach of the year. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, if he does this, let's give it to him. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Russell Wilson getting benched and Joe Flacco being back. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. 
Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. We're here with Nora and we're talking NFL. And the biggest headline in the NFL right now is the story of Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos, a marriage that has never been able to work. And it's kind of started off on the wrong foot ever since he said, let's ride. Um, he is now officially being benched. Um, they are in full breakup mode. There was a lot of conversations and a lot of fallout to be had. But first and foremost, when you saw this headline and you saw the news, what was your first impression and your reaction to, to the story in general, Nora? So my my overall reaction is I'm kind of I'm kind of impressed that they kept all of this under wraps. Right. Yeah. <laughs> as long as they did. Because mm-hmm. what we've learned here and um Mark Maskey in the Washington Post had the full report and a lot of details about what's been going on behind the scenes there, but he reported that a lot of these issues have been going back months. Right, the September. That- and and including that in October, after the Broncos upset the Chiefs, which was that game where Patrick Mahomes was under the weather and blah, 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 blah. So it wasn't like a, a truly, truly dominant offensive win or anything like that. And Russell Wilson didn't play great in that game, but still they up, upset the Chiefs. If memory serves, it was like the first time in, in years and in seasons that they'd beaten Kansas City and big win and blah, 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 blah. After that game, they threatened to bench him if he didn't rework the contract to change the injury guarantee to make it a little bit easier for them to to play him out and not be scared that he would get hurt and they would be on the hook for $37 million. I'm kind of impressed that we didn't hear about that until now. Just because if if we think back to last season, there was all of the drama about Nobody on the team was going to Russell Wilson's birthday party. Mm -hmm. And there were the fights on the sidelines. And there was all of this drama. And I don't quite know what it says about Sean Payton, about the Broncos, about Wilson, about their atmosphere, that some of that stuff is happening, but not being so obvious publicly as it was last year. But it is interesting to me that that is the case. Because I would not expect that. I would have thought that if if they were at an impasse serious enough where Wilson and his reps are going to the NFLPA and saying, they're going to bench me because they don't want my injury guarantee to kick in. Can you do something about this? And the PA is, is going to the Broncos. And the Broncos are saying it is completely all right, which is correct. Mm-hmm. It is completely all right if we want to play him or not. That stuff, I, I just can't believe that this is just coming out and, and that the Broncos have been having all of this drama behind the scenes and actually kind of doing okay. Uh, and and I don't know if that's a credit to anyone involved, but it is at least interesting. Yeah, and Russell Wilson, I mean, he hasn't had a bad year. I mean, a lot of people are acting like, I mean, he's had, by the numbers, not not the worst year, uh, you know, and he's not really to blame for this whole situation. But if he does get waived, as many would expect he would, is there a team that kind of fits and wants to be in the Russell Wilson uh, market, right? Is there someone that says, hey, if we bring in Russell Wilson, our team goes to the next level? Is there anyone out there? Are there any suitors? So this is the team that I always throw out there with quarterbacks. Like I, I've thrown them out there with Daniel Jones too, but the Falcons mm. could be someone interesting. I think if you're if if you're in Atlanta, you would have much preferred a Russell Wilson of a few years ago who had a lot of a lot more mobility. Weird stuff can happen. I mean, is it a team like is it a team like the Patriots? Maybe someone mm. who at one point this season was in the conversation for one of those top two draft picks, if that doesn't work out and you don't have like a Drake May or Caleb Williams or someone who's coming in is your surefire starter and feel good about the long-term franchise starter potential of the player. If it's someone a little bit less pedigreed than that and you want a bridge quarterback, maybe that's Wilson for for a team that likes veterans. I, I bet it's someone in that 
situation because obviously he's he's still an at least middle of the pack starter, but I don't know that there's going to be a team that's going to want to make a long-term commitment. Yeah, I like Atlanta. I think Sierra would be happy about that. Obviously, she's got her ties to Atlanta, so I, I think that would be uh, a win-win for everybody. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. We're here with Nora. And uh, every week that I have Nora on the show, I, I throw out a story to her. She tries to debunk it. She tries to make sense of it. And there is a story that has been circulating right now about Lions offensive coordinator Ben Johnson. Uh, it is rumored that he is looking for $15 million salary to be an NFL head coach next season. Um, how? Well, so now hold on, hold on. Okay. Too. We should be really let's precise do, here. Is it rumored that he is looking for a $15 million a year annual salary? Or is it rumored that people around the league are talking about how he is rumored to want a $15 million a year annual salary because it is. I, the original report from Josie and Anderson had, and, and, you know, no, no shade here. Like you got to be precise about what it is you're being told, but it had like six different qualifiers about, I'm not reporting that he wants it. I'm reporting <laughs> that other people say that, people are talking about how he wants $15 million a year. And I just found that very, very funny. I will say this, my read, when I saw the headline and I saw, you know, Joe Cena tweeted that, like I'm, she said, I'm told this. I think that he told the Carolina Panthers that that is the number that it would take for him to take that head coaching position. And I think he just threw out and his agent probably was the one that did it. Just said the number is 15 million. And if they come back and they say, we can meet you in the middle at, you know, 10 million, seven and a half million, whatever it is, he's like, okay, we can have a conversation, but I don't think he wants to have the conversation with the Panthers. So I feel like this is a Panthers report that is now being circulated as if, you know, that is the asking price for any team that wants to hire Ben Johnson. Am I crazy to think that like that? That's how I read it at, at first. So, you know, just so we don't get in trouble here, I believe his agent did uh, do a little debunking or at least denying right. of his own. But I am okay, totally good. just in terms of reading the tea leaves here. I'm totally with you. That okay. screamed to me. I don't really want to go to the Panthers, but uh, David Tepper, if you're reading this for right. 15 million a year, I'd do a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. so. You give me $15 million. I'll come down to Charlotte and I'll be the biggest Panthers supporter you've ever seen. Um, and and totally. Ben Johnson's a guy who went to North Carolina, has North Carolina ties. We understand that. So um, I don't blame him for, for having a high asking price that, you know, you can get paid what you want. Um, you know, it's one of those things, too, where uh, people in Charlotte, if they heard that he was making $15 million a year, they would have a lot of expectations for Ben Johnson. So it might be something you don't want to even get entangled in. Um, does, does he have a fit anywhere else outside of the Panthers, in your opinion? Like if, if you just think of a team that needs a new head coach, does Ben Johnson come to mind? Maybe the Chargers would be one of those teams. Yeah, the, I, I think the Chargers would be a really good one, um, even though I think the direction that Kellen Moore tried to take that offense I would be interested to give it another year, especially if they could make some improvements with the run game. It doesn't seem like the concept was what was wrong there. It was an execution thing, and it was just the general direction of that team under Brandon Staley. It's not good. Uh, look, <laughs> I am. I, I don't think this is happening, but I am of the camp that I would love to see the Patriots go in a completely different direction I think like they're probably going to end up hiring someone like Jod Mayo, who's a really smart guy, really good guy. I am just a little bit like if I were in Robert Kraft's shoes, I would think very seriously about completely changing things up. And someone young, someone offensive minded like Ben Johnson would be a really, really interesting candidate. Um, he'll be in, in he'll be a hot commodity. Mm. So he's going to get interviews basically anywhere where there's an opening. Uh, and it seems as though his attitude was, well, 
if I say that I need $15 million a year to coach the Panthers, then either I get $15 million a year or I don't coach the Panthers. So maybe that's mm-hmm. a little bit of a win-win. I'm also noting that someone has put in our show rundown, plus Cam Newton will be the president of the Panthers for free. Yes. he, he <laughs> Do you get he, a little discount there? <laughs> yes. I mean, you get paid $15 million a year. Cam Newton, uh, he works for free. He's the president of the team. Um, Cam Newton is is all over the place these days. Shout out to him. He, he is making lots of comments. He is uh him and Debo Samuel had some beef going on. He's uh he's out there. So you know, as a Panthers fan and someone that grew up watching the Panthers, let's bring in Cam Newton for free. I, I think that's uh that, that might be the biggest story we could have in the offseason, Nora. That, bring that would in be Cam great. Cam Newton for fifteen million dollars. <laughs> it's not my money. <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Let's bring him in. Let's try to let's try to shake things up. Uh, so shout out to uh, Cam Newton. Shout out to everybody out there. Um, you know, it's going to be a, a fun year in Charlotte as they figure this out. And uh, maybe you get an incentive based contract there for Cam Newton. Nora, where can we find all your amazing work here at The Ringer? And then we'll let you go enjoy the rest of your holidays. The Ringer.com. Uh, the Every Single Album <laughs> podcast. Right. The Ringer NFL show. Dual Threat twice a week with Steven Ruiz. We're going to be on New Year's Eve. Wow. Breaking down all the Sunday games. Uh, did a little bit of a guest appearance on Extra Point Taken last week. I'm all over the place, Tate. I'm everywhere. Yeah, I'm so proud of you. And Nora, appreciate you coming on the show. We love having you on the show. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have Rob Mahoney join us and talk NBA. We'll be right back. Very exciting. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome back to Through the Ringer. Joining us now, you know him from the Ringer NBA show and writing on the ringer.com. He is the great Rob Mahoney. Rob, great to see you, man. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Tate. Yeah, I know it's the uh, the dead week here. Uh, not a lot happening in the world, but there is something to talk about that is dead. And that's the Detroit Pistons um, <laughs> having a big season this year. So let's start there. The losing streak continues to compound. This is a team that could have been 3-0 and to start the year, but right now they look lost to say the least. So what are our thoughts just generally on the Detroit Pistons? Is there any sort of hope? Is there is there, a, is there something that we can point to to say maybe there's a chance they can turn this thing around? Man, that's the brutal part is that there isn't any. That mm. even if they do win a game and you know, they're going to break the streak eventually. We'll right. see if they eventually get to 30 games, which would be the longest losing losing streak in any of the big four American sports. But regardless of whether they do that or not, whenever they win, there's no hope on the other side of it because this is still a team that can't shoot. Mm-hmm. And so on most nights, like they don't even have a hope of keeping up. They take fewer threes than anybody. They make fewer threes than just about anybody. And that's not changing. And so they don't have that like plucky underdog thing where they, on the right night they can hit and beat somebody. They're just outgunned. And so the construction of this team is what's dragging it down. And until they make major moves or, or a major draft acquisition down the line or a major trade... All that stuff is going to remain basically as it is right now. And it does feel like with Detroit, you know, they get the number one pick, they get Kate Cunningham. It's like, okay, now it's going to happen, right? They, they make this trade for Jalen mm-hmm. Duran. They got their guy. Jalen Duran's a great player. They get Monty Williams, a coach who's been to the NBA finals. Like, it just felt like every single time it was like, okay, now is the time. And for whatever reason, it's not working. It, it, what is and who is the kind of biggest cause for concern? Is it coaching? Is it the front office? Is it the players themselves? Like, where, where do we point to to try to figure out remedy of the situation? So coaching, I think there's there's a lot of it. Monty Williams has not done a great job optimizing what he has, but what he has is a roster that doesn't fit. And so Mm. it's easy to look at ownership at the front office, a Troy Weaver there and saying like, there's clearly an effort to maximize young talent, right? Get as many talented young guys on this team as we can. Sure, there's a couple of veterans, but for the most part, it's Cade, it's Jaden Ivey, it's Jalen Duran, as you mentioned. It's it's taking flyers on guys like James Wiseman, you know, talents who were drafted high in previous draft classes. And the idea of like seeing if we can just make this work on the fly. But the result of that is you have a mismatched roster that doesn't fit, that doesn't play well together, and that by not playing well together, you're actively driving down the trade value 
of the guys who might be interesting to other teams. So I don't know how you get out of this mess given the way the roster has been assembled. And so I point the finger first and foremost at the front office, given that I can understand some of the vision in wanting to put athleticism around Cade Cunningham. But if all those athletes can't shoot, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, and you got a lot of people that are trying to figure out how to get Cade out of that situation. And obviously, the way to do that is via trade. I've seen some, um, you know, trades thrown out there. You know, some interest in maybe a Tobias Harris, a Pascal Siakam. Is there anyone that you could bring in there to help kind of help Cade get to that next level and at least make him feel better about the fact that the team <laughs> is trying to help him, you know, be the best version of himself? I think trades like that might almost be thinking too big. Mm-hmm. They really just need some players who can round out the pick and roll so that he has a little more room to operate, that give them a little more space in terms of how they run their offense. Because defensively, they're a young team that's going to take their licks and will come along as they go. But personally, if you're a young team and you can't keep Asar Thompson on the floor, you're failing your developmental process. So I'm looking at you know, any young shooters you can find, any guys who are even just kind of second draft or middle of their careers, you know, I'm not even looking at someone like Tobias Harris or Pascal Siakam who are so far down the line in terms of being established NBA players. I want to take flyers on guys, but I want to take flyers on guys who can actually stretch the floor. Yeah, so now we talked about Detroit. Detroit, uh, we're we're sending our thoughts and prayers as we enter the new year. Hopefully good (laughs) things ahead. Um, Let's talk about a team that did find a way to remedy their issues, and that's by bringing back a guy who is uh, a very talented player, to say the least. We're talking about John Moran, of course. Right now, the Grizzlies, to make the playoffs, is plus 320. Um, Ja comes back. They're 4-0. They look exciting. Ja's having fun again. Um, What are our thoughts on the Grizzlies, and what is the ceiling of this team with John Moran playing like this? Yeah, we know that when John Morant plays, the Grizzlies are a team that just bank regular season wins. Like they're basically a 50 win guarantee when he's in the lineup for any sustained period of time. So assuming he can be healthy the rest of the way, you're spotting the 25 games of his suspension, but they're going to win a lot of them. And I, I think to their working in their benefit is the fact that some of these other teams in the West, teams like Phoenix, teams like Golden State have huge questions. They're kind of spiraling of their own making, of their own mistakes at this point in the season. So you can see a pathway for Memphis to at least get to the play-in if they continue to consistently win. I think that's where things get dicier. Is mm-hmm. We know who the Grizzlies are in a, in a playoff setting. If it's a one-game-to-advance kind of situation, are they going to beat the Lakers if the Lakers are still in the play-in bracket? Are they going to beat the Mavericks if the Mavericks are still in the play-in bracket? If the Kings drop down? There's just so many teams that I think would be really tough matchups for Memphis that... I think they can get themselves into a more competitive position, but I still would be hard-pressed to see them make the actual final eight. Yeah, John Morant, though, we talk about value, right? I mean, this is a team that was a bottom feeder that could not win a game that just looked like, you know, in the same conversation as the Pistons, but now he comes back and now we're talking about play-in, potentially playoffs. I mean, does that help his conversation as being, you know, one of those most valuable players in the league at this point? Totally. I mean, what he does for their offense is something that very few people in the entire league can replicate. Mm. And you saw that when he was out. You know, Desmond Bain stepped up and did a pretty admirable job scoring more, creating more, trying to step into that role. And yet, even an admirable job was just piling up losses because the, the talent gap in creation between someone like John and someone like Desmond Bain is just that big. And more importantly, everyone else, when Jaws out, has to scooch up in the creative pecking order. So Jaron Jackson Jr. is doing too much. You know, every guy on down the line of their roster is doing too much. But when you put him back into that mix, everything makes sense again. The entire roster makes sense again. And this is a team that still is missing multiple rotation players due to injury, especially on the bigger end of the rotation. But they make do when you have someone as dynamic as Ja, who's going to draw so much attention, who can splash out to so many different kinds of teammates and shooters. The whole roster just makes a lot more sense. The enterprise in Memphis makes a lot more sense with him out there. Yeah, because he is the son that, down there in Memphis, as uh, you know, Chris Vernon has pointed out many a time. So uh, shout out to Memphis. I know they're excited about the return of Jai. Let's talk about another team that has a young MVP candidate. Let's talk about the Timberwolves. Are we giving the Timberwolves enough respect for how much they've been able to kind of put <laughs> themselves in the forefront of the NBA right now? Are we talking about them you know, enough at this point? Yeah, who who is the we? Is the we you and I? Is the we a, a larger media base? I think, think it's the larger media base. You know, you and I, yeah. we're talking about them right now. So check the box for us. Oh, yeah. The, the Timberwolves are lighting up my life, my group chats personally. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately there's a few things happening with the Timberwolves probably not getting enough respect for a team that's winning as much as they are right now. One of them is people just catching up to the idea that the Timberwolves are this good. Yes. And we see a bit of a lag with especially the long-suffering franchises when they do turn a corner, 
there's a little bit of disbelief. There's a higher burden of proof. We saw for them the to Kings kind of last twin- year, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's always going to be a little skepticism when those teams finally do turn it around. And Minnesota has been a little bit more in slow motion, more gradual than Sacramento's. But I don't think many people expected them to be this good this season. And so that's always going to be a little surprising. But the other part of it, you know, the way the Wolves are winning is so much because of their defense. And that's just not sexy in the way that's going to draw people in and get them talking about their successes, even though on a nightly basis, man, you watch some of these other high-level teams roll into Minnesota or even you know host Minnesota on their own home floor. They get ground down. You see opposing superstars, some of the best scorers in the sport, you know, guys like Luka Doncic, guys like Devin Booker, guys like De'Aaron Fox. At the ends of those games, they might get their numbers, but they look like they just ran through a wall. <laughs> right. And most importantly, they're usually going home with an L at the end of that night too. And Minnesota was kind of the first team to change their roster to respond to Jokic, right? I mean, they were like, we got to go big if we want to contend in the Western Conference. So shout out to Minnesota for making that move. I have to ask about Anthony Edwards. Right now, he is plus 5,500 to be the MVP in the NBA. Do we think there's value there to believe in Ant-Man that he can take that leap and be in that conversation? Mm-hmm. I, I Okay, so this is the instructive part is in that conversation. Mm-hmm. I think he's... Definitely a candidate, but seeing him crack that top group of Joel Embiid and Jokic and Giannis and Luka, who's announced himself over the last couple of weeks, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, that's a tough ballot to crack. But if Ant is going to assemble a case here, weirdly enough, it's going to look a little more like the Derrick Rose-Allen Iverson case of a team that's a high-level defense where he is the best offensive player, taking them to a really high win total which I have to say is not what I would have guessed for Anthony Edwards at the beginning of the season. If you would have told me he's going to even be in the MVP conversation, I would think it's because his as an individual talent, he's so sensational. But he's a lot closer to being the best player on the best team. Like That's a criteria that we all know very well in the MVP talks, but I can't say the Timberwolves know it all that well. Yeah, and right now we got A-Rod and Mark Lore. They're looking to uh, take over and, and be the controlling interest of the Minnesota Timberwolves. So uh, A-Rod and Ant-Man, I mean, they got a whole little uh, band putting <laughs> together there in Minnesota, so that's good to see. Uh, we got Wimby versus Scoot tonight. Portland is favored, minus five in this game. Uh, Scoot said the the rookie of the year race is not over. He considers himself you know, in that race at this point. Hami Hakez obviously has played some great basketball. A lot of rookies have played some great basketball. How do we feel about Wimby and Scoot right now and kind of their competition between the number one and number two pick or number three picks? You know, most people thought could be the number two pick. Yeah, I think the race is not over, Mm -hmm. but I don't know that Scoot's in it. And that's kind of the problem with (laughs) the way his season has gone to late. In fairness to Scoot, I do think he's been significantly better over the last 10 games or so. It's hard work coming into the league as a young point guard, learning on the job with NBA defenses and NBA spacing. But you can see him settling into what is ultimately going to make him a pretty special playmaker. Like the vision is there. The downhill drive is there. It's just a matter of like making some more sophisticated reads and, and understanding what NBA defenses are going to do to you. Mm-hmm. That said, there's just nothing he's doing that's even close to the caliber of what Victor Webb and Yama is doing. And I say that even knowing that there are 10 to 12 times every game where San Antonio Spurs players just do not see Victor Webanyama under the basket standing there with, you know, completely unguarded with his hands up. So there's room for Victor to be even better. But I think what's scary about him right now is this is as, as raw as Victor will ever be. This is as unpolished as he'll ever be. And he's already making a massive star level impact on a game, albeit for a team that isn't winning very much. Yeah, both teams not winning very much. Which team do you think is closer to contention right now? Is it would you say it's the Spurs just because we like you said, this is kind of the rawest version we'll ever see of Victor Wimbanyama? Yeah, it's a weird thing to say about a team that not unlike the Pistons just dropped 18 straight. But Portland just doesn't have anyone like Victor. And I, I like a lot of the Blazers players right now, both in terms of the more established guys, Anthony Simons having yep. a great year. Shaden Sharp is popping. Tumani Kamara has been another really impressive rookie. Maybe not rookie of the year quality, but a really good role player for them. But there's no one on that roster that you look at and say, that's, that's the guy in the way that Victor is the guy. And mm-hmm. so the clarity that comes with that, no matter what you may think of Greg Popovich's coaching decisions or the other players on that roster, who's playing point guard on a nightly basis, the fact that you have Webb and Yama gives you a lot of clarity and, and pushes you toward rebounding and hopefully eventually contention at a much quicker pace. Yeah, and I think Pop has a master plan. I, I think he's kind of slow playing the whole situation with Wimbin Yama, so we know how that goes. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about your piece about the Giannis and Dame pick and roll. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Through the Ringer. We're here with Rob Mahoney and we're talking NBA. And when we talk NBA, there has been a lot of infatuation with, you know, a pairing that happened in the offseason. Obviously, I'm talking about Dame Lillard and Giannis Antetokounmpo, two top 75 players. And uh, everybody has been talking about these two guys when they are playing in the pick and roll together. But it has not, not quite been a reality. It's been more of something that we've just talked about in theory. Let's start there. You wrote a great piece about this on TheRinger.com. What is the, you know, the, what is the conversation and is it becoming an afterthought and and is it something that, you know, we need to be talking about more with these two guys? Yeah, it's such a fascinating thing where the Bucks are a blow the doors off opponents level offense. Mm-hmm. They're one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. And yet you watch them and it's the way in which you might want Giannis Antetokounmpo and Damian Lillard to play off each other hasn't quite come to fruition yet. They're clearly still learning each other's games. And if anything, that's what makes Milwaukee so scary is there's such a clear learning curve for them specifically and for the greater roster and for Adrian Griffin, who's coaching that team to figure out the best way to implement everyone involved. But even this kind of learn as you go version is this good and this dominant offensively. So a lot of growth for them, a lot of opportunity for them. But man, individually speaking, Giannis and Dame have been really exceptional so far. It does feel like they're almost operating independently of each other, even though they're on the floor with each other. And uh, you pointed out in this article, you know, a lot of the stuff that they're doing, it's like Giannis, your turn, Dame's turn. And at the end of the game, it goes back to Dame, obviously a, a clutch time superstar. But the, the the screen and roll game with each other, there kind of seems like, we were talking before we started airing, it's like it's a dance between two guys that are great dancers individually individually, but when they dance together, it looks kind of <laughs> awkward and staggered. Um, I know people are saying they're saving it for the playoffs and all that sort of stuff, but if you're saving it and you haven't practiced it, um, it seems like that's a, a recipe for a disaster at some point. Are we concerned about that aspect of, of the combination of these two guys once we get into the postseason? I think a little bit, especially because we've seen a Giannis regular season Bucks team be dominant during the first 82, be able to score at will, score in transition so much. All the questions with Milwaukee over the years have come down to half-court execution in playoff settings, and we're seeing some very encouraging signs in that regard. You know, Damian Lillard in crunch time has been as advertised. Right. Overall, Milwaukee's half-court offense has been much healthier and much more diverse, but you want, when you get into those, those critical moments in the playoffs, you want to fall back on something that feels familiar to you, and mm. I think where maybe the Bucks are overthinking that aspect of it a little bit is the beauty of playing Giannis and Dame together is that there is no intellectual way to solve that. There is no like, oh, if we put this on tape, they're going to crack the code <laughs> of how to stop the 6'11 guy who dunks on everybody and the shooter with infinite range. There's no like theoretical way that teams are going to really figure that out. So I don't really see as much harm in putting it on tape. I don't really see as much harm in doing it more during the regular season for the sake of those two guys getting more comfortable. And just as importantly, everyone around them, all the role players who are going to have to get used to cutting and shooting off of them, that doesn't just come overnight. And you compared it to Embiid and Harden last year, like trying to figure out where guys like to get the basketball. You know, James Harden was more like, let's get downhill, let's get to the basket. Embiid likes to catch the ball at the elbow. I mean, there were some mm-hmm. things that you you have to figure out each other, and it does feel like they're still figuring that out. But still, while they're figuring it out, they're number two in the Eastern Conference. So things are going well in Milwaukee, and there <laughs> is still a ceiling that they can get to that is going to be scary. Let's talk about the Orlando Magic. They've been one of the hottest teams in the East. Um, but right now, they, uh, you know, have won four of their last 11 games. Are we concerned about Orlando? Or they kind of, uh, you know, getting back to who they are, or do we think that they're going to get it back together very soon? Yeah, their offense has been a little bit on the skids lately, which happens with them. Another mm-hmm. team that relies on young point guards who are figuring it out as they go. So some of that execution is going to be a little lacking in some moments, but what they have, you can't really take away. And that's like the size they have on the wing, the assertiveness they have going to the basket. And as much as anything where they've regressed, their schedule is just kind of really cranked up on them. Like losing to the Sixers without Joel Embiid is not ideal for a young team that's trying to prove itself. But over a week's time, they played twice in Boston. They played Miami. They played in Milwaukee. Those are games you expect a young team like the Magic to lose. You might hope that they can steal one, but it's reasonable that they would lose to teams that are that formidable. And so I still like where the Magic are. Their schedule is just kind of leveling out on them in a way that loses them some ground in the standings right now. And teams are kind of gearing up for them at this point because they know they're a good team. So that changes the way that people, you know, prepare for them. And I, I like the rookie, Anthony Black. He had a good game the other night that uh, showed Absolutely. some signs that he has uh, a high ceiling in the league. Um, shout out to Ringer NBA group chat. You guys are doing a great job. You, Waz, and Justin Verrier, you did a Festivus where you aired your grievances of the NBA season so far. <laughs> what is your biggest grievance of the NBA season so far for you? And then I'll give you mine and then uh, we'll let you get out of here, Rob. 
you know, I think for me right now, the officiating has been a little out of whack. Mm-hmm. And this is something I usually try to give the refs a little bit of slack, give them some grace. It's a tough job, but I don't even care so much about the free throws. I just don't want guys getting technicals for hanging on the rim a half second too long. I don't want the best player in the world getting ejected after a single technical for our right. you know, really no reason. A little bit of colorful language that by NBA <laughs> standards is pretty mild. And really, I, I think one thing that's bugging me is all of the time-consuming challenges and reviews and the constant revisions to the score as a couple of folks in Secaucus check the tape and see whose foot was on the line when they shot a three. I just don't think that stuff is that important. And if anything, the confusion of going into a timeout thinking you're up 10, coming out of the timeout, all of a sudden you're up seven. I don't know if it's worth all that personally. Mm, I like that a lot. And, uh, you know, Steve Kerr got a lot of, you know, gripe from people saying that he was calling out the officials. But I think it is a point. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are involved. It feels like in the game of basketball, (laughs) to say the least. Uh, My grievance is the most improved award. Uh, I feel like we need Mm. to get back to figuring out what is the actual award for. You know, John Morant kind of broke the award. He ended up giving it to Desmond Bain, who probably should have won the (laughs) award. So right now I feel like Kobe White should be in that conversation. Cole Anthony right there. There's just let's do like the actual most improved player and that'll be my biggest grievance and if we can do that I'll be happy about it um, Rob where can we find all your work here at the ringer we need to make sure people are staying uh, up to speed on what's happening in the NBA as we get into the new year yeah I mean always at the ringer.com and if you pull up the ringer NBA show on Spotify wherever you get your podcasts find us there twice a week every week top 10 podcast on Spotify we love to see Hell it yeah. man shout out to you guys and uh, thanks to everybody for watching through the ringer we appreciate you tuning in and we will see you in 2024 we'll see you then This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. 